I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get Shipped same-day delivery. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash hi. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben. In the flesh. Great to see you. <laughs> Good to be here. Did you enjoy America's birthday? Uh, I did enjoy America's birthday. You guys got a little time off. You look tan, rested, uh, ready. Yeah, so yeah, I got a little sun, yeah. uh, a little reflection. Me too. Uh, now I'm ready ready to dive back in here. Yeah. Hannah and I went back to Boston, and I, the summer before my junior year, maybe the most fun I've ever had in my life, I yeah. worked at this fancy hotel in Cape Cod. So we like spent a couple nights there, so I got to you know th- throw it in their face. Yeah, that's good. That's Remind good. them of the fact that they had actually fired me uh, yeah. at the end of the summer that's for... <laughs> Things we won't get into. On this it's always podcast. good to use uh, national holidays to settle scores. Uh, <laughs> I went to Hawaii, uh, which was interesting because we used to go to staff Obama. Yeah, and I actually stayed at that same hotel, which was uh, never fun. Which was, I something mean, terrible would always happen. Yeah, and because you had to live on East Coast time, so you'd yes. get up like four in the morning to like be on the news cycle. Yeah, the well, the guy yeah. tried to blow up a plane in Detroit when you that guys was, were there. Yeah, that would not be a good example of a vacation. No, uh, no, yeah, the. the Actually, being on the East Coast in the summer, like there's a distinct feeling, right? It's humid. There's bugs. Yeah. But like a nice day in New England in the summer is like the greatest yeah. gift you can imagine. Yeah. And it did remind me of the one trip I staffed for Obama on Martha's Vineyard when yeah. he was there. And like a bunch of horrible things happened. I think Ted Kennedy died. Yeah. John Brennan did this briefing that terrified the press corps about all these national security issues. It was... Uh, not relaxing for the team there with the president. Yeah, I hadn't taken a vacation with my wife that was over a week in like years and two years in a row. Um, and again, I want to be very clear, like I am not the tragedy in these stories. No, but no, it's just course. to get at how weird these jobs are. The first day I went on vacation in 2013 was the day of the Syrian chemical weapons attack. Oh, my God. And so we land. I basically turn around on a plane and come home. Then the next year, I'm going to Martha's Vineyard to staff that trip. And the flight takes off to go to Martha's Vineyard, and the first ISIS beheading happened Jesus. while we were on that flight. I had to go tell Obama. And so it's a reminder that, like, the world followed you anywhere you were in those jobs. Now, nobody cares what I think about anything. Me so, so I can go to Hawaii. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, here we are. But here I have are. to say, I was really missing not getting to do a quick update on the news on this show. I last know, week. I know, There's so I, much going on. I know. You and I thought about trying to figure it out from like different time zones, but Our then sort of killed us. We realized we yeah. were crazy yeah. people. But um, so today we are going to talk about Trump's ongoing fight with the United Kingdom, an Iran update, a North Korea update, Sudan, Hong Kong, all stories we've covered before that have materially changed a bizarre new update about Russian interference in the 2016 election. Our new chief diplomat. Ivanka Trump, and some mm. 2020 news from Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and then we are joined by E.J. Tamelkarin, who wrote an amazing book called How to Lose a Country 
The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. Uh, she's Turkish, although I don't believe she's allowed in the country anymore because Erdogan is yeah, terrified of her. Yeah, she's kind of on every blacklist that you can be on in Turkey. Yeah, so she she's is, on this uh, podcast. She is a badass. Quick housekeeping thing. Uh, make sure to check out our new Crooked miniseries, Reclaiming Patriotism. What does patriotism mean, Ben? Who gets to call themselves a patriot? Doesn't matter. The series is hosted by Ken Harbaugh. He's a former Navy pilot who ran for Congress in Cincinnati area, I believe. Uh, Ken's going to sit down with people you've heard of like Pete Buttigieg, Tammy Duckworth, Barbara Lee. It's a cool series, thoughtful guy. So check it out. Okay, let's talk about our special relationship with the United Kingdom. On Monday and Tuesday, President Trump lashed out at the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, and Britain's ambassador to the U.S., Kim Derrick, who I'm sure you know pretty well. I know very well. Yeah, Kim very well. Like a very well thought of individual. Trump's ego was bruised after reports that diplomatic cables the ambassador wrote had described Trump as, quote, radiating insecurity and, quote, (laughs) diplomatically clumsy and inept. Boy, did Trump prove him wrong by lashing out on Twitter, right? Yeah. Way to own him. I mean, well, first of all, I knew Kim, uh, you know, he was David Cameron's national security advisor. Right. So this That's is a how I senior guy. I mean, this guy is very qualified for this job. And he was the ambassador at the end of the Obama administration, the beginning of this one. You know, part of what's so stupid about this controversy is everything he said is painfully obvious, right? right? That, that Trump newspaper. is insecure, that they're, that they're incompetent, that, but because this was like a secret, you know, leaked memo, mm-hmm pretty obvious and anodyne conclusions about Trump get blown up into some gigantic kerfuffle. I'm sure that every single ambassador (laughs) thinks the same things about Trump, right? And also the way the UK works is these are people, these are like foreign service officers. These aren't like politicians that Mm -hmm. we put there, right? I should add, by the way, Trump's own ambassadors have like trolled the People where they're, you know, we've talked about Rich, Rich uh, Grinnell in mm-hmm. uh, Germany, essentially, you know, undermining Angela Merkel. So it's not as if they're sitting in a glass house here. Dude, Trump has said meaner things on the record about Theresa May about than Theresa was said May, about him in these cables. About Sadiq Khan, the mayor yeah. of London. Uh, so I, this is just confirmation that the world thinks. It, but it, it, what's useful about this is that. You know, Trump continues to insist that somehow he's respected around the world. Mm -hmm. And we see yet another data point here. Every public opinion poll says that's not the case. When we actually hear the unvarnished views of foreign leaders, we learn that's not the case. The fact that the French put out that video of Ivanka that we're going to talk about yeah. later shows you how much the French respect <laughs> Trump and his family, right? So the takeaway that Americans should have here is our closest allies think that this guy is crazy and competent and insecure and that we have collectively made an insane decision as Americans by putting him in the presidency. And for Trump to just have some childish meltdown and attacking Theresa May, who's leaving, right. Kim Derrick, who could probably give a shit, and a bunch of people who, frankly— are all in agreement that Trump is uh, incompetent. Those are our closest allies. You know, just it confirms, to your point, what Kim Derrick wrote in that memo. <laughs> yeah, so Trump tweeted that Derrick is wacky and stupid, and he basically PNG'd the guy, which means declaring an official persona non grata and forcing them to leave the country. It's like the harshest thing you can do to a diplomat. He didn't officially do it here, but Derrick can't. He won't continue in this job anyway because there's going to be a turnover, but he couldn't continue because no. Trump said they'll no longer speak with him. And I'd say a couple of things. Like, one is, like, we, we welcomed back the, the Saudi ambassador who was apparently involved in the murder of Khashoggi. Oh, my God. And we're going to PNG Kim Derrick, the ambassador for the UK, eminently qualified guy. The second thing is I was at the uh, British embassy in in the transition period. And I always thought it was kind of funny because here we are at the British embassy, the epicenter of the deep state. I'm there Mm -hmm. and all these. 
And there's Kellyanne Conway and right. Trump people there. <laughs> right. They love the parties, right? They shit on all these ambassadors, but Jared and Kellyanne, all these people love to show up at a good European embassy party yeah. and have some fun. Politico yeah. reprinted all the spotteds that include Trump officials with Kim yeah. Derrick, which which means those are the sources for him in yes. these cables because he's citing conversations. Yes, and everybody likes, you know, they throw like the biggest parties at the British embassy yeah, and, and, and there's celebrities there. And, and so these people love to go to these parties and then they crap all over Kim Derrick. The most interesting thing is that these were leaked to the Daily Mail. There's some speculation that maybe Russian intelligence intercepted them somehow. Maybe it came internally. You never know. But I mean, Trump, I think, tweeted what he tweeted because he's a big baby. But also, I suspect it was in part to help Boris Johnson in his leadership race because they think, well, we need someone to smooth it over with Trump now. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he's done everything he can to meddle in this and to help uh, Boris. I just had, Tommy, you remember the British ambassador actually wrote a shitty memo about Obama oh, yeah. <laughs> in oh, 2008. Yeah. Uh, just to remind people, because why would you remember this? The sitting ambassador in 2008 wrote a, a, the memo that Obama was kind of like, I think it was aloof and mm-hmm. out of touch. It was that that whole vein. We didn't PNG the guy. He was still the ambassador for the first year or two, I think, of the Obama administration. No. Like, I met with him. We dealt with him. Like, so, you, no, it's not normal to say, I don't like this one leaked memo and I'm going to PNG you. No, we just took flack because Obama dared to move a bust of Churchill out of the Oval well, for a bust yeah. of Martin Luther King. Yes. You Sorry, know. guys. Sorry about that. America first. Yeah, yeah America. <laughs> <laughs> um, Another big update was the nuclear brinksmanship with Iran continues. So on Monday, Iranian officials announced that they'd enriched uranium above the 3.67% limit set by the Iran deal. So I'm going to attempt a brief overview of this, uh, although I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But basically, you can find trace elements of uranium all over the place, soil and water, whatever. It's mined every year, like tons and tons of it. But only a tiny percentage of naturally occurring uranium contains the highly radioactive isotope called U-235 that you can use for nuclear power or at like a super high concentration, over 90% concentration of bomb. So you have to enrich it or concentrate it. So that means you spin it around super mm-hmm. fast in a centrifuge until you separate all that all that good shit, yeah, all, the, yeah. all the dank uh, uranium. So what the Iranians announced is a tiny step forward in terms of what it would take to create a nuclear weapon, but yeah. it's clearly designed to get the world's attention. And presumably the Iranians think this will give them some sort of leverage and a negotiation. It comes after they exceeded a different limit that was part of the deal that basically set a total amount of low enriched uranium that they could have in the country. So Ben, you know, you were an expert in this. You yeah. helped negotiate the Iran deal. What did you make of this latest announcement out of the Iranians? And like, what do you think the end game is here? Well, I think they're definitely trying to get attention, right? Because, again, the way in which that deal was structured, you have a series of inspections to get at the life cycle of uranium. The inspections include uranium mines, where you get the stuff, uranium mills, where you process it, then taking out two-thirds of the centrifuges that spins it Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, as you said, tries to create the weapons-grade potential of that program. It called for shipping 98% of the stockpile out of the country and keeping these limitations on the stockpile. It converted uh, the core of a heavy water reactor that could have produced plutonium so that it couldn't do that. The Iranians are not taking the most provocative steps here. Mm -hmm. They're not saying, we're reinstalling all of our advanced centrifuges. We're going to start to try to make a heavy water reactor that can produce plutonium. We're not kicking out the inspectors. But they are taking a step saying, you guys have violated the deal, the United States. And and our media sometimes seems to forget that in the coverage. Iran takes provocative steps. Yes, Iran did take a provocative step in response to U.S. leaving the deal and violating the deal. I think what they're trying to do is say... Okay, 
we can take a provocative step as well. We're going to take this incremental step to violate, yes, this would violate the terms of the agreement, begin to reaccumulate some stockpile of enriched uranium, show the United States, hey, look, we can start to move towards having enough material for a nuclear weapon again, mm-hmm. unless you're willing to come back to the negotiating table or daring us to, to bomb Iran, which they've seen Trump doesn't want to do, mm-hmm. right? So the Iranians have seen two things. They've seen North Korea getting the sweetheart treatment because they already have a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. And they've seen that Trump doesn't really want to go through this war that John Bolton wants him to have. So I think they're going to test this. And they're going to say, what are you going to give us in response? And I, what will be interesting to watch is if the Europeans and maybe even the Trump administration says, okay, we'll float a little bit of relaxation of some of these sanctions to, to get back into negotiation ironically, to try to recreate something like the Iran deal. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is so frustrating, is that Trump now says he wants to negotiate. The deal you'd negotiate is the one that existed or some variation of it. And that's where we are. It's amazing to see all these former opponents of the Iran deal come out in support of essentially the concept of the Iran deal. So here's one tweet, actually two tweets from AIPAC. Quote, we cannot allow the world's leading state sponsor of terror to enrich the uranium necessary to build a nuclear weapon. When previously faced with severe economic pressure, the Iranian regime negotiated limits on its nuclear program for financial relief. The burden is on the Iranian regime to end its illicit nuclear program and accept American offers to negotiate a comprehensive agreement, blah, 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 blah. Like, they're calling for the Iran deal. There's no (laughs) illicit program because we have a deal that puts inspections in there that allows us to see the program. I thought my next question would trigger you. No, but I, I, I... these APEC people, the, they were against the deal before it existed because th- that was the line right. that Netanyahu had taken. They spent tens of millions of dollars against this deal, right? What was the pact? L- l- uh, emergency I, committee. Yeah, oh, well, then you throw in the emergency committee for the yeah. protection of Israel, united against the nuclear Iran, all these Gulf-funded, shadowy-funded, yeah. Sheldon Adelson-funded organizations spend years <laughs> lying about what's in the Iran deal, trashing the Iran deal. They get what they want. They get Trump to do exactly what they want. We're going to pull out and we're going to sanction these guys. And what happened? They pulled out. They sanctioned these guys. Their behavior got worse. They fucking start shooting down drones. And they're restarting their nuclear program, which is the most predictable thing that could ever happen. What did you think was going to happen when you pulled out of this deal that you guys spent years trashing, right? And that's because it was not on the level. It was politics. Yep. It was about yep. stirring up their political supporters, whether they're in the U.S. or in Israel, or obviously the Saudis and the Emiratis have their own agendas. And now here we are, <laughs> and these people want to negotiate the Iran deal all over again? AIPAC is suddenly... Fo- AIPAC said, like, let's fucking get the tape yeah. here. They said, no, if you don't address all these other aspects of Iranian behavior, it's support for terrorism, it's meddling in, in other nations. Mm-hmm. If you don't address all those things, no deal. Now they're saying, oh, no, a, a formula of sanctions relief in, in, in exchange for restrictions on the nuclear program is a great idea. Come on, guys. Time is a flat circle. Oh, man. Sorry. I really missed having you in the studio. That was great. <laughs> One more thing that will annoy you. So... In the first Democratic debate, every candidate except Cory Booker said they would re-enter the Iran deal as president. I have expressed my great frustration with that position on Pod Save America last week. But here's some news. We decided to ask about the Iran deal in our latest poll that we've been doing with change research of Democrats in early primary states. So the full results come out Thursday, but we're going to tease the Iran deal question here. So Ooh. just so you know that it was a fair Ooh. question, here's the, here's the language. 
In 2015, the U.S. entered into a deal with Iran and other world powers that created restrictions on Iran's nuclear program but relaxed financial penalties on Iran. When Donald Trump took office, he withdrew the U.S. from the nuclear deal and resumed the financial penalties. Do you think the next president should re-enter the Iran deal? 85% said yes. 4% said no. 12% didn't know or had no opinion. So in conclusion, Booker's position is bad policy and bad politics, and I just cannot understand it. Thank you for pulling that. And I... Look, for the life of me, I can't understand what on earth Cory Booker was thinking. Like, what's right? a fair-minded, like... Here, well, okay, here's the fair-minded thing, mm-hmm. which is we are now out of this deal, and if we were going to come back into it, we should leverage the fact that we're out of the deal mm-hmm. to For force Iran else. to make additional concessions, right? The, you deconstructed this pretty well on Pot Save America. The only thing I, I, I'd add to this is... Obviously, when we're the ones who violated the deal, mm-hmm. like it completely blows up our credibility to say, oh, and we're only going to come back in if and when you make additional concessions. How are we going to get the Russians and the Chinese on board with that? The only reason right. we got the Iran deal in place is because we had a united front among our allies and Russia and China. But beyond that, the way to negotiate those additional concessions is within the framework of the Iran deal. Build on it. Why wouldn't you want to be in the deal that restricts the Iranian program? while you then seek to address ballistic missiles and things like that. The thing I'd add to this, though, is the the reason this is so frustrating of Cory Booker and and the absence of the leadership that we would want in the next commander-in-chief, and it's not because he took a shot at the Obama legacy, it's because he is embodying everything that is wrong with the politics of national security in the Democratic Party post 9-11. That's the same reason that people voted for the Iraq war. It's the same reason people were wishy-washy on the Iran deal. It's because they think that the only way to look tough on national security is to act like Republicans. And you know what? That's a losing political strategy. If people want the person who's most against the Iran deal, they can vote for Donald Trump. Like, be for something else. Be for an alternative. If you're for diplomacy, be for the diplomatic agreement. If you're against a war, be for the thing that's going to prevent the war. Don't stand up there and try to pander to some elite caucus that says the way to be commander in chief is to be tougher on, on Iran. No, the way to be commander in chief is to restrict Iran from having a nuclear weapon, to rally the world behind the approach that gets that done, and that prevents us from having another war. Mm -hmm. And I was glad to see that the rest of the Democrats didn't fall into this dumb trap. Yeah, it was very frustrating. I don't get it. It's just, let's be for what we're for as Democrats. Let's let's actually believe in things and stand for them. Yeah, like diplomacy. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk North Korea for a second, because we need some diplomacy there as well. So Trump basically begged Kim Jong-un via tweet (laughs) to meet him at the DMZ so they could like high five and call that an accomplishment. And then, of course, countless reporters took the bait and breathlessly reported on the suspense and the stagecraft of a photo off. TikTok of the photo off. So that was just infuriating. But another big story that happened while we were on vacation was the New York Times reported that Trump might settle for a freeze of the North Korean nuclear program, not a full rollback. So that's a Big, big distinction. So basically that means you accept North Korea as a nuclear state. You say, keep the nukes you got, just don't make any more. John Bolton angrily denied that report. But when Trump and Kim were hanging out in the DMZ, Bolton was in Mongolia for meetings. And I'm not belittling Mongolia, but like I'm sure that's not where he wanted to be in that moment. So Ben, I'm curious what you made of the historic DMZ summit 
in the idea that we might do a freeze for freeze deal, as it's been called, with the North Korea? Well, first of all, I just don't know how many times like our media is going to fall for this, right? Because like we've now had the Singapore summit, the Hanoi summit, mm-hmm. the DMZ summit, and nothing is substantively different about any of this, right? The, there's no role. Nothing is changing. Nothing. North, North Korea is still building nuclear weapons. Like they've been testing missiles. But every time this is treated as some momentous event, and I think it, it confirms, you know, Trump, what he understands, he doesn't understand foreign policy at all. No. He doesn't understand nuclear physics at all. He understands the American media. Mm-hmm. And he understands that if he can create the impression that he's solving a problem, that's what most people in America are going to consume. Oh, North Korea was a problem, big problem a couple years ago. But now he's shaking hands at the DMZ and the media is breathlessly saying well, how historic it is. And it just seems like the problem is solved. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important to at least be pointing out that it's not. And also to be pointing out there's something grotesque about this embracing of this dictator. I mean, yeah. you know, we took a risk in, in meeting with, say, a Raul Castro, who is nowhere near in the same league uh, in terms of barbarity and uh, being a murderous dictator as Kim Jong-un. And we took all this grief for it. This guy, let's not forget the character of the man that he's embracing and praising lavishly, a man who runs concentration camps, a man who killed his half-brother in another country. (laughs) With VX gas. The freeze for freezing, I think, is the the right place to start. Mm -hmm. I wish that they had started there back in Singapore, right? In other words... This is what we did essentially with the, on the way to the Iran deal. We started with a, an interim agreement that froze the Iranian program, had some steps to roll it back. Um, so I actually think that if you were designing this process from the beginning, you would start there. And yeah. they're kind of getting back to where you would begin. The problem is the North Koreans have meanwhile banked all this legitimacy, all this international embrace – And and all the enrichment activity we were talking about with Iran, they've probably been doing as fast as they possibly can this whole time. Yeah, they've just thrown their foot on the the gas. And what they've also seen is they've seen Trump tear up the Iran deal. Mm. And I really mean this. Like, Why would North Korea ever give up nuclear weapons? How could you ever trust the United – if the United States won't stay in a deal with a country that is complying with the deal – and doesn't have nuclear weapons, why would you ever give them up? I mean, this is the intangible thing that Trump lost, the credibility of the United States to keep agreements. So the most they're ever going to do is say, yeah, we'll we'll freeze some stuff for a while, uh, get rid of those sanctions, and nothing will be materially different. So a freeze works if it's a part of a broader strategy to work for a rollback of that program, even if you may never get it all the way rolled back. What they're doing, I think, is giving all the reward to North Korea over the last year, year and a half, and maybe now circling back around to the minimum that you yeah. can achieve. The other intangible thing that we've lost, or actually it's kind of tangible, is the trust of all of our allies, yeah. uh, you know, the Japanese, the South Koreans. I mean, they're all a little freaked out about what we're doing here. And it's a, this is sort of, in some ways, talking about Trump and North Korea is a very unsatisfying conversation to have every time because you feel like you're sounding the alarm and tearing your hair out and saying, hey, guys, the problem is still there. It's still getting worse. But that is never the focus of the coverage. What I want to stress here is like, I want to be for this. Right? Like, I want a diplomatic I mean, revolution. I did the diplomacy with Cuba. I supported the diplomacy with Iran. Like, I believe in diplomacy to solve these problems. But the way in which you conduct the diplomacy matters and also the motivation matters. Like, I don't think Trump really cares about solving this problem. I think he just saw this as a way to generate this kind of reality shows. I mean, one of the things that tells you everything you need to know here, and obviously being defensive as someone who worked for Obama, but the last time he embraced Kim Jong-un, 
he said Obama wanted to go to war with North Korea, and he, Donald Trump, prevented yep. the war. Yep. This time, he said <laughs> Obama was desperate for a meeting. I know. And, and like, Why does that get reported? And, and, like, you don't have to repeat his lies. Yeah, neither are true. We weren't about to go to war, nor did we ask for a meeting. Like, it's just neither of them are true. But the point is, he's not interested in a problem solving. He's interested in... Essentially, how does he politicize this relationship? Yeah. So I'm better than Obama. I have my photo op. I get a lot of – he could have written the headlines for Chuck Todd or whomever, like the showman on the world stage, mm-hmm. right? That's what he wants people to consume because they know they're not going to be consuming the analysis piece that actually says, well, the whole time he's been talking to North Korea, they've been building nuclear weapons. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Okay. Another story we've been talking about a bunch is in Sudan. So – Ben and I have talked about it. You've heard from uh, Wafame El-Amin, who's a Sudanese-American organizing the diaspora in D.C. and other places. So there have been these amazing protest movements, and then they turn violent because the military just cracked down on, on these protesters and killed hundreds of them. So then on July 4th, these civilian and military leaders in Sudan said they'd reach a power-sharing agreement that will hopefully, hopefully, hopefully lead to a transition to democracy. Here's how it's supposed to work. They're going to form a council made up of half civilian leaders, half military leaders, and then one additional person that's named. They're going to supposed to rotate who's in charge. So the military is supposed to be in charge for the first 21 months. The civilians are supposed to be in charge for the next 18. Then after that interim period, Sudan is supposed to hold elections and the country is going to allegedly transition to full democratic civilian rule. I mean, first and foremost, Ben, like these brave protesters deserve a ton of credit. I can't imagine a scarier place to do what they did. They put their lives on the line. That said, I'm very worried about the more detail I read about this agreement and all the ways it could go south. I mean, a lot of these generals are notorious like war criminals. It sounds like the United States pushed really, really hard for a deal to come together quickly that seems to have advantaged the military in every way possible and also gave people on this council immunity for the murder of these protesters. But I I don't know. I, I want to be hopeful, but it's tough. I'm Yeah, like, this deal feels very fraught to me. It feels a lot to me like the Sudanese military has been working off of the Egyptian military's playbook, mm-hmm. right, in terms of how they – acted like they're on the side of the protest. It's like Egypt happening in a much more condensed time frame, yeah. right? They acted like they're on the side of the protest. They removed the, the front man, Bashir. Then they get tired of the protests. They crack down. They clear the square. They agree to some pretty long, lengthy timeline before they would have to t- yeah, turn three things over. Years? That's plenty of time for them to rig mm-hmm. everything. Frankly, I'm skeptical that they'll ever keep this deal and turn, turn things over. So, you know, I think they're trying to make the protests go away. And I think right now, though, they have a very strong hand. And I think the people of Sudan are just going to have to find ways to continue to mobilize. And I would like for them to have more support, not just from the United States, mm-hmm. but potentially from within, you know, the African Union, some other African countries, yep. although that's not that likely. But because right now, I, I, this deal does feel to me a bit like you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, you're saying, yeah, we're here for democracy, but, you know, we get to stay in charge for a while and maybe we'll hand it off to you. Yeah, and we got all the tanks and guns. Another big protest movement we've been watching closely is in Hong Kong. So to catch you guys up, the legislature in Hong Kong was pushing a bill that would have allowed Hong Kong residents to be extradited to mainland China for prosecution. That understandably terrified residents who didn't want to get thrown away into the Chinese judicial system on trumped up charges and never be seen again. So there are these massive protests, like a quarter of the population, massive. And Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's chief executive, 
partially backed down. She declared the extradition bill dead, but protesters wisely worry that she's dishonest in parsing words, and they want her to promise essentially not to initiate the bill ever again during her term because they worry that she'll just shelve it for a while and then put it back forward. So until that happens, it looks like these protests are going to continue, and the Chinese seem to be increasingly agitated by it. For example, there was an activist or a singer yeah. from Hong Kong testifying at the UN yesterday. The Chinese kept interrupting with points of yeah. order, et cetera. So I don't know. I, I Again, like incredibly brave protesters taking to the street. It's good to see that people are still fighting for democracy, but this one is not over yet either. No, I mean, clearly they have the upper hand right now. Uh, so you saw the chief executive of Hong Kong try to say the bill's, you know, dead, but it's, you know, nobody yeah. really believes that. I think, though, what the people of Hong Kong have showed us is they've broken through kind of the fear factor, right? And they've continued this mass mobilization. Obviously, the Chinese government strategy is going to be to try to wait them out and then start squeezing again. I think that part of what we're seeing in lots of different parts of the world is control is really in the hands of autocrats, right? Mm-hmm. And Control can take the form of weapons in Sudan. It can take the form of surveillance technologies in China. But the one thing they can't control for is mass mobilization. Mm-hmm. People really do have a certain amount of power, right? And you know, we'll talk to uh, Etche here in a moment about Turkey too, but people took back some control in those elections in Istanbul. They, they were, you know, Erdogan tried to demoralize them by invalidating the elections as they turned out again. And, and I think that the lesson is, Mass mobilization is the only tool that can work um, when you're confronted with people who have lots of tools of control. The Chinese government just can't ignore like a quarter of the population protesting. They can't ignore that in a financial center, Hong Kong, where banks might look at this and think like, do we want to stick around here Um, or do we want to move our operation, you know, to Singapore or something, right? So I, I think the lesson for activists everywhere is there is really a strength in numbers here, and you, you're going to have to keep it up, but you can put some points on the board. You can get some wins here. Yeah, that's a good lesson for all of us. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh, like artist Angela. go on a journey to the pier by the sea. Take a small vacation, dance under sun-soaked trees. Hurry close, take me far to where I want to be. Just pick any day, feel it all drift away. Transport your life today with the first scent of flame. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 
Let's talk about Russia for a minute. There's a new report out from Yahoo News that details all the ways the Russian intelligence was behind this disgusting conspiracy theory for around the 2016 elections about a murdered DNC staffer named Seth Rich. So Seth Rich was murdered outside his apartment in what is believed to be a robbery gone wrong in D.C. But the Russians very quickly circulated a fake intelligence bulletin claiming that he had been murdered by Hillary Clinton's team because he was going to blow the whistle on her or her campaign in some way. Truly ludicrous stuff, offensively craven, but a useful cover story for Russia to say, hey, this kid leaked all those documents to WikiLeaks, not us, right? We're innocent. So Russian intelligence fanned the flames uh, of this conspiracy for the years. They used their asset, Julian Assange. They used social media. And then they used useful idiots on Team Trump. Steve Bannon, like the worst human being in the world, sent a text message to a CBS producer that said, quote, huge story. He was a Bernie guy. It was a contract kill, obviously. That is Craven. He sent yeah. that from the White House when he had access to the PDB and all the intelligence yeah. in the world. Alex Jones covered it. Roger Stone. A lot of morons at Fox News like Sean Hannity like gleefully ran with it. So I guess I'm not surprised that the Russians did this. But to me, the lesson is that their information would not have been that useful if not for the giddy cooperation from Trump yeah. creeps and the right wing media. Full stop. Yeah. Part of what was so tricky when I always try to explain to people when they say, you know, would you, you guys should have done more to stop this Russian interference in the election, is that what the Russians did is they found narratives that were already on right-wing media or that were ripe for right-wing media, right? And they just shot content into that ecosystem, knowing that the right-wing media in the U- U.S. would do their work for them, yep. right? So Fox will pick this up and run with it. Alex Jones will pick it up and run with it. That grifter, you know, Mike Cernovich, the Pizzagate guy, yep. will pick yep. it up and run with it. And all they have to do is, you know, amplify or invent a conspiracy theory, knowing that that all the work will be done somewhere else. And if if Barack Obama went out and said, "Well, this is a conspiracy theory," you know, they're not going to listen to Barack no. Obama. And so what they, the Russians found is a weakness in our own society that they were just able to exploit. The fact that you have people who would want to believe something so crazy that you know that, that Hillary Clinton's people had this poor young kid killed, and I should add, put his family through hell, hell. right? Absolute I mean, hell. imagine losing a loved one and then having all of these right-wing people gleefully inventing him being a part of conspiracies, him being complicit in potential crimes. Just maligning this his is character. A human being, the yeah. The 27-year-old working his ass off and, yeah, and just, not some hype. He didn't have access to all these emails to leak them. No, like, we all no know sense people. We face. used to be that guy. Exactly. We used to be Seth Rich. We used to be the 20-something who wanted to make it in politics. It's So to me, it should – like you hear about these conspiracies. Sometimes we laugh at – at you know, Pizzagate or you know Benghazi's this kind of catchword, but what's happened is the kind of conspiracy theorizing of the right wing media became a weapon for Russia, where again they didn't have to do that much work in order to have whatever narrative they wanted out there amplified yep. by all these people yeah. um, who will choose to believe anything if it validates their worldview. Yeah. Uh, speaking of people who don't have to do any work to get their message amplified, Ivanka Trump. Yeah. She has become. <laughs> the chief spokesperson slash diplomat for yeah. the administration. So this goes back a little way. So obviously the White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, just resigned. So Trump's team went on this foreign trip and they started having Ivanka record these readouts of meetings, like 30 or 60 second little videos of yeah. what happened in a meeting. 
And like back when Ben and I were at the NSC, you or like subject matter expert would go up to the podium and spend like 90 minutes yeah. talking about all the things that were discussed. I used to love doing that. Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah. it was like cool. You get and to nerd out for once. Yeah, but you get to like dig deep on, on policy. She's not doing any of that. So she's jumping into photo ops with world leaders. She has no subject matter expertise. And then the French released this painful, painful video of Ivanka trying to jump into a conversation at the G20 with Theresa May, Emmanuel Macron, and Christine Lagarde from the IMF. And they're just like, get out of here. Like, you have no idea what you're talking about. So it's fun to clown on her. There, a lot of fun was had on Twitter. But it's also an actual problem because if I'm watching the United States from afar, I'm wondering when the U.S. transitioned to a constitutional monarchy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, first of all, I, I a couple of times recorded those videos. Oh, like what would happen in Obama meetings? Uh, n- yeah, like yeah, I did the quick readout uh-huh. for the digital team. Like nobody watched them. Right. I mean, I, you know, so I guess uh, you know, maybe I don't have the star power that Ivanka has. They looked like hostage videos too. But anyway. a bit of a state media vibe too. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's a good idea a good from the idea, social media team, but it's like in practice a little weird. Yeah. Don't tell Tanya that. Here I know. Well, cover yours, Tanya. But I think it's. We, we can't get over the embarrassment here. The G20 is the most important collection of countries in the world, right? The French, I, I'm wondering why they release this. It's kind of, you it's know, amazing. it's a brilliant troll. But essentially, you know, you get Christine Lagarde, like, responsible for the world economy. You know, you've got Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the UK, obviously on her way out. But you got Emmanuel Macron, and these are serious world leaders. And then you have this daughter of the president. You, you know, we're the most powerful nation in the history of the world at the collection of the most powerful nations in the world today. And that is what's going on. (laughs) Like that we have like the daughter of the president, like just kind of butting into conversations with these world leaders. And going into bilateral meetings with other heads of state instead of the secretary of state, for example, or the national security. Yeah. This is one of those times where we have to stress this has never happened in the history of the United States of America. Like we just celebrated the 4th of July, like never before has someone essentially had their completely unqualified kids, daughter and son-in-law, essentially responsible for our foreign policy. By the way, I used to go to these, these sessions, right? So you have the area where everybody can be, like staff like me could be. And then you have what's called the leader's lounge, mm-hmm. where it's only leaders. I don't even know what she's doing in there. No. Like, seems... like th- that's supposed to be just leaders. That's a reason why that conversation. So clearly Trump is also like bending the rules, jamming his daughter and son-in-law, who, by the way, also have all kinds of business interests floating around in these mm-hmm. different countries, just jamming in in there. So what? So she can have fantasy camp as, as a diplomat? Like, so she can play at secretary of Madam Secretary or something? Like, I think it's worse. I think that they're trying to set her up to get nominated to, as ambassador to the UN. That would be my exit strategy if I were her to get back to New York. I mean, just so that they can complete the House of Cards uh, yeah. like cycle here, where, <laughs> yeah. where you know, like where the the sexual predator who's president uh, nominates the woman in his life for the UN. Spoiler. Ambassador. I mean, like I, I just I, I don't I don't think Americans though. It's like the North Korea thing. Like, oh, it's part of the reality show. There's Ivanka. And Ivanka is like the more pleasant face and, mm-hmm. and isn't quite as infuriating as Jared. I don't think Americans understand. Like, everyone else around the world, I mean, to quote Donald Trump, they're laughing at us, right? Like, this is a joke. Like, that this person is is butting into conversations about the global economy of the G20. Like, what is happening here, right? Know, and there's no – and again, it's like other countries have <clears throat> dealt with – 
the corrupt son-in-law down the hall or the daughter who's the favorite, you know, uh, child of the, the dear leader, but not the United States of America. Like that's something that happens in countries that we think are broken and that are hopelessly corrupt, right? And how we recover from this, like how we indicate that we as a nation have learned our lesson that the affairs of the world, the world entrusted us to run it for decades. Like we built all these institutions. We set up the G20. We set up the G7. We set up the United Nations. And yes, we share power and influence. But like now, who's ever going to trust us again when essentially we all these institutions that we set up, the UN, the G20, to help the world solve problems become essentially fantasy camp for the president's kids? Like that's not a good look for a superpower. Yeah. In fact, that's like a, a way to get your ticket punched out of the business of being a superpower. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think uh, Malia did a hell of a job negotiating the can, Iran deal. Can but you imagine like Chelsea or Malia or, or like, you know, Sasha God the bless Treaty. him, uh, Jenna, Jenna Bush is like, can you imagine? Like, no. I, can, uh, like, I literally the I cannot imagine. What would we be saying if Jenna Bush was at the fucking United Nations or you know, the G20? It's not good. Yeah, doesn't mean a lot got done at those. And things. there's no 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 offense. She's doing a great job on NBC, right? And Malia's doing a great job in whatever she's gonna do in life. Like, but the, like they have the self awareness, by the way, to not do this. Uh, as did their parents. Yeah. Last issue. Let's do a little 2020 news before we get to our interview. Elizabeth Warren put forward an interesting new proposal that she says will help revitalize diplomacy. The gist is she wants to double the size of the Foreign Service and open some more diplomatic posts. She wants to create a diplomatic equivalent of an ROTC program to recruit Foreign Service officers who are still in college. She wants to double the size of the Peace Corps. She also wants to diversify the diplomatic corps, which is overwhelmingly white and male. And then this is a, a thing where we could do a little mea culpa here, Ben, is she pledged not to give ambassadorial posts to wealthy donors or bundlers. So... Obama, actually, this is one of the first press conferences we did in transition. I remember being there. Hans uh, from Bloomberg asked Obama, like, will you pledge not to name any donors to ambassador posts? And he said, no, yeah. I don't, because I actually think that there are well-qualified people outside of the Foreign Service who could be great ambassadors. That was proven to be true, right? People like Mike McFall, yeah. uh, Dan Shapiro, like subject matter experts yeah. who were in the Obama administration or on the campaign who went on to be ambassadors. But there were also big donors who got jobs in diplomatic posts who on paper were a hell of a lot less qualified except for their fundraising. Now, there's some notable exceptions there too. There's a guy named Matthew Barzin who was ambassador to the UK who was like beloved and seen as ushering in like a new era of how diplomats can interact with the United Kingdom, right? Yeah. It was like a smashing success. But there were some... There were some clunkers. Some clunkers yeah, 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 there yeah, too, yeah. you know? And like, look... The optics of giving a donor a yeah. big diplomatic post in the Bahamas aren't great. Yeah. So credit to Warren for an important program all around, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I like the first of all, the donor thing will get a lot of attention. And look, it's a principled stand that is entirely consistent with her broader message. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she's not just singling out these kinds of donors. She's not doing high dollar fundraisers. I do think it will be important for them to say there are people who might not be foreign service officers who can be ambassadors, yeah. who, you know, who are just experts. That said, what I love about this plan, and I think it's a great plan and shows that Elizabeth Warren's plans extend uh, to foreign policy, is that the State Department is completely broken, hollowed out mm -hmm. because of what Trump has done. Literally. It is going to need to be an all-hands-on-deck effort to restore it. And what I love is 
we're going to have to enlist the American people, particularly young people in this work of rebuilding the State Department and showing the world a new face. And the idea that she had to have like a, a diplomatic ROTC to try to get people invested in diplomacy when they're younger mm-hmm. and get them on a track into diplomacy is, is such a great idea. And again, the idea of growing and building out our foreign service capacity and, and again, bringing Americans to that great idea. It shows that she's wrestling with the gravity of the challenge. It's not just going to be like get a new president and get a new secretary of state. Like we have lost thousands of years of experience from the mass exodus of people who've either resigned because of Trump or who were like summarily kicked out the door by Rex Tillerson. And I think, you know, she's once again shown that she gets it. It's not just the, the policy. It's how are you going to implement the policy? And here, rebuilding the State Department, I hope this is one entry and hope the other candidates have similar plans. Um, it, you know, we've given shout out to our buddy Matt Duss, who's done a great job for Bernie. Mm-hmm. There's a terrific staffer for Elizabeth Warren named Sasha Baker. You can follow her on Twitter now. I, oh, cool. I, she just went live on Twitter. Um, but, she, you know, smart people around Warren, too, and, and a, a very needed entry to this debate. Yeah. Not only are these good ideas, but they wrote a long Medium post where they framed it well. I think there there's some stat in there that's like there are more people who work in military supermarkets or kitchens yeah. than there are foreign service officers. Yeah, there are like, more people in military bands. At one yeah, point. yeah, like the funding yeah. discrepancy is just insane. And when you think about the importance of investing in preventing wars yeah, <laughs> versus yeah. fighting them, like, you know, everyone seems to benefit here. Well, look, the challenges in, in American foreign policy, as in the American economy, are structural, right? And Warren has pointed out, and I've learned a lot from listening to her about the structural inequities in the American economy. There is a structural problem in a foreign policy apparatus where the Defense Department is sitting on a trillion dollars and the State Department is fighting for a few tens of billions of dollars. There is a structural problem when you have this massive workforce, millions of people uh, working uh, either in the uniformed military or the Pentagon, and you know we're, we're hemorrhaging career ambassadors at the State Department. And so she's trying to write the, that balance once again. And, and again, if, if we are concerned about you know, the militarization of American foreign policy, that's not always the fault of the military. Just like it's not the fault of the military that they had to roll tanks through uh, Washington, D.C. <laughs> that's that's like the decision that presidents make and the Congress makes. And she's saying, if we really want to address this and we want to reprioritize diplomacy, we need to hire more diplomats and we need to more, bring more people into the process. Man, we didn't even talk about the tanks in the street. I've forgotten about that already. I, let's, I mean, like a checkered and dark day. <laughs> I mean, here's, can I just say something as a former speechwriter? One, every time Trump doesn't like vomit onto the podium or insult people, everybody's like, well, he actually gave a unifying speech. He gave like a paint by the number of speech that any junior speechwriter in the house, no offense to junior speechwriters in the house, could write. And then everybody goes wild. Two, it's like, well, actually, it turned out not to be a divisive event. No. Like by the time he got up there, once you've had the Joint Chiefs forced into a political event, where they're giving out RNC tickets and they're paying millions of dollars to roll tanks for a photo op through Washington, it's already divisive, guys. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter what the fuck he says. Yeah, July 4th is so easy to not make divisive. Obama used to have a party on the South Lawn. There were tons of service members invited. They put on a concert for them. We went as staffers. Some supporters went. But it wasn't like we were closing down the mall to hawk tickets for the RNC. It was it was about service and the troops. It was like... And, and probably none of you are aware of it, and that's because we low-keyed it. But yeah. the reality is we went to that big barbecue on the South Lawn 
the people invited were the military. So this idea that Trump is, you know, I heard some people say, well, Trump gets it. You wait to pay tribute to the military on July 4th. No, the people that got the tickets to that event were like vets and wounded warriors, right? We just didn't, you know, tattoo it on our forehead and have like a bunch of generals stand next to us while some tanks rolled through the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. God, speaking of days off that weren't, I remember being at that event on the South Lawn, had had a couple drinks, and I got an email from John Brennan who was like, so-and-so at the New York Times is about to publish a piece of intelligence about our relationship with some country that will end our access to something critical forever. And I yeah, yeah, yeah. sprinted yeah. back upstairs John to the lower press. subtle email. Uh, yeah. yeah. You we, think his Twitter is like, that's actually how he talks. <laughs> I know. You know, like, like you, sir. Like, how dare you, sir? Like, like that's actually, like, people think it's like some Twitter persona that there's, he has. No, like. There's also a lot of Jersey in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, like, yeah. sleeps with the fishes but and in, things like But that. very articulate Jersey. Yes, very yeah. articulate yeah. Jersey. Um, all no, right. no offense to the rest of Jersey. I mean, just there's <laughs> this kind of King's English meets Jersey bar meets CIA operative that all comes together in John Brennan. Yeah. Unique package. That sounds right. Yeah. Okay, scores were settled. I feel like uh, cleansed. Just, I mean. What have I got to lose with APAC here? You know, um, <laughs> they love you. And, and I'll, I'll say, it, like I, you know, Cory Booker. There's time to fix this. No, yeah, like I, I like find much to admire in Cory Booker. That's what's so disappointing here, right? Is it exactly? He's this guy. He's so smart. He's so he smart, knows and he's this guy who calls on Democrats to not be afraid. He's been totally unafraid in the positions he's put forward on criminal justice and mm-hmm. other issues. And so, why do you have to take the kind of like path of least resistance? I'm going to try to score some points with the lead opinion. By you know being the the hard ass on the Iran deal, fight it's for just, diplomacy, my yeah. friend. Okay, when we come back, our interview with Eche Tamalkorn, a badass Turkish journalist. Ask Sherwin Williams and get thirty percent off Duration and Super Deck products May seventeenth through the twentieth. That means thirty percent off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Our guest today is Eche Tamokorin, a Turkish journalist and the author of a fantastic book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, calling in from your vacation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So the book, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, everyone I know who has read it has come away pretty much terrified by the parallels with what's been happening in America during the Trump administration. Can you walk us through the Erdogan playbook and and how he has been strangling democracy in in Turkey? Sure. But before doing that, I should uh, maybe emphasize that I am really set to hear this uh, you know, people get terrified when read the book. When they read the book, uh, well, actually, what I aimed at instead was to, you know, uh, comfort them, uh, telling them that it's not it's not happening only to them. So, you know, I'm I'm telling you the steps so you don't have to get terrified. It's just uh, you that you have to get prepared. So, I hope uh, less people are terrified uh, and more people are ready to do the you know. The work that's necessary. The Erdogan's playbook, or rather the playbook of all right-wing populists, uh, both in Europe and in the United States, are seven steps, basically. It is, first, they create a movement, because the party, political party, is over. Uh, they create a movement, because the movement, uh, the, the, the word itself, promises um, action, uh, excitement, so to speak. Uh, and then they ask for a respect, uh, for respect to be respected and to be recognized on the conventional stage of politics. And then once they get the respect, uh, they elbow in them, themselves uh, at the table of the conventional politics. And then on, until they seize the power, they use several uh, tricks such as, uh, you know, politicizing, a manufactured kind of victimhood and so on. The second step is, once they get at the table of the conventional politics, they start disturbing the rationale and terrorizing the political dialogue. And then on, you know, you see all these appalling, astonishing, surprising, shocking uh, statements coming from right-wing populists or their spin doctors. And all of a sudden, you you know, you as a person who is capable of uh, reasoning, basic human reasoning, you find yourself paralyzed, sort of. Uh, the third step is getting rid of the shame, and immorality is the new black, might be the motto of our times, I guess. Uh, they encourage, but not only encourage, that po- they politicize and mobilize shamelessness among their supporters. And then, you know, shamelessness become a badge of honor among the supporters of right-wing populist leader. And the third step is they dismantle the judiciary and political mechanism. Uh, And this comes, of course, after they seize the power, they 
play with the judiciary mechanism, they play with the institutions, and uh, it's not only they put their own guys in, in important places, but also they create this idea of superfluousness of the state institutions. So uh, you start thinking that, oh, that state institutions that we thought of being so strong were actually paper tigers, uh, so we can loot them as well, the supporters think like this. And then the fifth is, it's the use of political humor. We, most of us, uh, <clears throat> think that laughing at these right-wing populists or their supporters uh, would make everything easier. It is as if, as long as we laugh at them, they're not real danger. It's a way to calm our uh, anxieties in the beginning, but then it becomes a poisonous political attitude as well. And they use this, uh, they are, um, are, you know, we become so busy by uh, with laughing at them, and meanwhile they do serious stuff, which is not easy to laugh at after a while. And the sixth is design your own citizen. And in order to do that, in order to uh, design their own ideal citizen, they start with, with women. It's not coincidence that all around Europe and in the United States that uh, women are targeted by right-wing populists' uh, discourses and policies. Uh, somehow, for some reason, uh, all these leaders think that uh, reshaping the women according to their own likings is an overnight job. Uh, so they start with women. Um, and that is why all around the you know Western world at the moment, including Turkey and United States, women's rights are under attack. And the seventh is design your own country, which is the last step, which I hope United States won't be witnessing. Is you know it is they get simply get rid of all those people uh, who criticize, who are obstacles before the ultimate power. Uh, they either get rid of them by prisoning them or terrifying them into muteness or uh, they make them exiles. So and at that, after that stage, I think uh, the dictatorship is fully formed. And the thing is, these steps, some of these steps are so invisible uh, to recognize in the beginning. And then uh, in retrospect, you see that all these things happened. Yeah, that to me, uh, I should say also, by the way, that anybody who's been interested in this subject should should read this book because it, it really breaks down the overlapping strategies of all these leaders that we've seen emerge on the right. And that, uh, to me, part of what was so chilling in the story you tell about Turkey and how it relates to other places is there's not like one Reichstag fire, right? There's not one moment when, okay, we used to be a democracy and now we're living in an autocracy. You describe the kind of slow motion version of this. One of the areas I found really interesting to read about is is how the media, of which we're all a part in a way, is essentially co-opted by these leaders and can't find the language to describe what's happening and is manipulated by them. In the U.S., what struck us in being in the White House is you know, Trump comes on the scene in 2011 saying Obama wasn't born in the U.S., the media is laughing at him, but they're putting him on every channel, you know, over and over and over again. And that's how he builds his political brand. And you have some great anecdotes in the book about people trying to to shame these leaders, you know, to fact check Nigel Farage or to fact check uh, Erdogan and missing the point that these leaders don't care. They want the media as a foil, but they also depend on the media to essentially 
you know, be a tool for them to to push their narratives. And and I'm wondering what is the appropriate way for journalists to describe what is happening? Because it feels like here in the U.S., people don't get it. They're covering every tweet from Trump. They're they're covering the issues that he wants to be covered while also mm-hmm. becoming the foil for his supporters to hate. What is the right way for an independent news media to deal with a Trump, an Erdogan, an Orban, a Farage? Well, um, Hannah Arendt has this uh, amazingly, you know, famous term, uh, banality of evil. And I reversed the term to evil of banality in the book. And this is one of the reasons I did that is this wrong attitude of media as well. All these banal things that Trump did or Orban did or any other right-wing populist, all these, you know, shocking things or really vulgar things, uh, if we keep on following them, if we keep on multiplying them by publicizing it, there is no way that we can beat the evil of banality, evil of accumulated banality, so to speak. Uh, what American media did, uh, almost as uh, it was almost identical to Turkish media 15 years ago, was to find that uh, their first uh, obsession, so to speak, was to find a common ground, a common language. How can we understand them? How can we embrace them? All these people who supported Trump, and then uh, when once it didn't work, it turned out to be a you know, great, really severe polarization between the uh, Trump supporters and the media. And New York Times was uh, especially, you know, vocal about that. Uh, And then it became this, you know, almost a war of discourses between New York Times or, you know, other media that is against Trump and Trump supporters. I think uh, we shouldn't be forgetting that once people believe... I'm not saying convinced. Once people wanted to believe in something, and in our case, unfortunately, it's Trump, it's not easy to refute uh, their beliefs because beliefs cannot be refuted. And this is what American media and part of the European media is trying to do. And then when it doesn't work, they start mocking these people. They start making fun of them. And then it gets really sarcastic. And it becomes really, at some point, it becomes ugly as well. I think what we have to do is to take it seriously to start with. And then uh, follow the, you know, classical rules of journalism. Follow the money. That's one of the, I think, most important rules of journalism. So instead of uh, focusing on what Trump does or how funny he looks, how absurd he is and so on and so forth, I think uh, we as journalists should uh, focus on uh, on the real powers that have put Trump there. Uh, there is one thing I see lacking in American media and in European media, which was also lacking in Turkey uh, at the time. They are many journalists, many opinion makers, many politicians as well. They're trying to criticize uh, Mr. Trump without criticizing the system itself. They behave as if, if only we can get rid of Trump, everything will be back to normal or everything will be perfect again. I think uh, we have passed the time and Trump is not a, a reason uh, of the political insanity we are all living or 
or his ilk, but actually he's the consequence of what we have been going through since 1980s. So uh, not only we have to criticize or analyze what happened to the world since 1980s that created this right-wing populist leaders, but also journalism has to go through a very serious self-criticism about its role in democracy, about its role in uh, social, equal uh, social equality, about its role uh, for telling the truth. So uh, I think what we have to do is two things at the same time. Take seriously what's happening around us, no more jokes about it, and second, take seriously the fact that we have to criticize ourselves and uh, the system itself that created Trump and his ilk. We've been following on this uh, podcast, especially the the elections in Turkey, right, where you know, it feels like there's some life in opposition in the sense that you have these elections, Erdogan tries to invalidate them, they rerun the elections, he loses again. Obviously, we see this potential fracture in the party with Gul and, and Davatolo uh, potentially breaking off. Are we seeing the beginning of a potential uh, rejection of Erdogan, or is this just another minor <laughs> inconvenience for him as he consolidates what you would call his dictatorship and uh, by all accounts looks mm -hmm. like a dictatorship? Well, I'm like, after 17 years of uh, Mr. Erdogan, it's not easy not, you know, to be precautious when you're happy. I am really happy that there is this almost in-your-face kind of uh, win for opposition in Istanbul. And Istanbul mayoral elections was more than itself. I'm like, it, it, it's, uh, it was a change in political climate. Uh, and uh, that change was so solid that you could, you could touch it with your hands. And it was so funny, actually well, disgusting and funny, to see that uh, on the night of the elections, almost five minutes after the official results were announced uh, and that the opposition's win was, uh, you know, definite, uh, I was watching the TV, all these political commentators, uh, TV commentators, who have been devout uh, supporters of Erdogan, turning into this new discourse, like almost novice uh, rebels. <laughs> so uh, when you see men for all seasons uh, change their discourse on TV only in five minutes, you know that there is a change in the political climate. It's not only a little win in mayoral elections. So there is a change and people are trying to tell, I guess, that they are fed up Mr. with Mr. Erdogan. And they have all the right to say so. I mean, like, imagine Trump for 17 years and multiply his political skills with 100. <laughs> That's what we have been through. Uh, it was so difficult to explain this to Europeans or Americans 10 years ago. But now, since they're having a similar experience, uh, it would be, you know, it would resonate with them uh, better, I guess, than it did 10 years ago. So now, you know, one of the things, well, it is, it's a crack in the wall of dictatorship, that's for sure. But one of my observations during the night of the election and after the night of the election has been that actually Turkey has a new normal now. Uh, Mr. Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, who is now the new uh, mayor of Istanbul, but also he's becoming a natural rival to Mr. Erdogan, is a religious person. 
uh, he's not uh, reluctant to show that he's religious. This was kind of unthinkable before Mr. Erdogan invaded uh, the political uh, stage in Turkey. So I think uh, Mr. Erdogan has set a new normal for Turkish politics. Uh, no more uh, pure secularism in Turkish politics. And this is what I thought when Ekrem Imamoğlu was talking about God and, you know, praying and religion and so on. But on the other hand, uh, he did, he persuaded this uh, attitude or policy, so to speak, a political tactic, which was radical love. Uh, you know, after such uh, deep polarization of the country for such a long time, I think people missed the feeling of being normal or simply turning back to our normal insanity. Um, so it's giving people a break, uh, so to speak. His discourse, his policies, his uh, way of speaking are, uh, is giving people a break from all the terrorizing uh, political climate that Mr. Erdogan created. People tend to think that authoritarianism is only about politics. But then it gets into the capillary vessels of life, so to speak, and it gets into your daily life, into your very personal relationships. It terrorizes them as well. And a certain uh, new moral or, or immorality is established among the people. I think people, are, people in Turkey are tired of that. They're exhausted, uh, literally. Uh, of uh, being subjected to evil, vulgarity, and banality constantly. So, uh, in that sense, yes, there is a change, and I am expecting a lot uh, from this change. Uh, and on, in terms of this new party, I don't think many people are believing in that, uh, because those are the people, the, you know, the new founders, uh, founders of the new party are the people who, who themselves say that we have been silent all along, even though we saw that democracy was in crisis and human rights were violated. Uh, so I don't think they would be taken seriously, at least by the streets, by, the, by those people who are looking for a new political option. So I sort of mentioned at the top that some people are depressed by the state of democracy in the U.S., but let's see if we can leave them on a hopeful note. What do you see in Europe, in the U.S., that gives you cause for hope? And, and what tools do you think people need to use to actually push back against creeping authoritarianism from Trump or, or from anybody else? Well, personally, I'm not a big fan of the word hope. Uh, I, I would rather go for the de word determination. And, you know, sometimes there is no hope, but you cannot take away determination from humankind. And I see the determination both in the United States and Europe. And I am very excited, actually, for the coming years. And everybody should be, Americans included, because for the first time in decades, uh, they are awake and they are remembering that they are political subjects, not political objects. And that understanding uh, of themselves as political objects have been imposed on them since 1980s. And now they are waking up and they are realizing they, they have to make decisions and they have to take action. And as they take action, they start understanding. All this time, uh, we thought that understanding is not, uh, is not you know, in direct contact with action, but 
Understanding without action is impossible. Therefore, I think people of Europe and people of the United States are now finally understanding not only the gravity of the situation, but also their own capabilities. And that is so exciting to me. And if we, if we really want to talk about hope, I am hopeful about young women because they are reacting as the uh, canaries in a mine and they are re reacting very strong. I was proud as a woman and as a human being when I saw that the first uh, immediate reaction was uh, came from uh, American women on the day first, <laughs> day one, they, they were out on the streets. I think, um, I think one should be more than hopeful by looking at the strength, determination, and resilience of those women. The book is How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship. Thank you so much for joining the show and taking time out of your vacation. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. That's it for Pod Save the World. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, rate us in the store. Rate us and review us. Give us those five stars. Tell your friends about the show. Can no I one's listening at this point. I just want to be just clear say whatever you want. about one thing. I read the reviews sometimes. <laughs> oh, do you? Yeah. Which is, you know, I probably shouldn't. Like, I stopped reading my Twitter mentions a while ago, but the reviews are very helpful. And some of you echo, like, there's a polarization around profanity in uh, the reviews. Well, some yeah. people love it. Some people don't. Look, so I hear about that. You're like my mother-in-law and my sister-in-law, yeah, you know? So write the good reviews because, like, we want to read them. Or roast us. Or roast us. Too. And I'll actually read it. And I'll, you know, I'll think about it, too. Like, <laughs> Talk to you next week. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 